Coming up on this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Chronic disease doesn't work in isolation. One in four have two or more. Hey guys, it's Dr. Hyman. Now a big part of my schedule involves traveling. I have about five jobs and I'm constantly flying across the country or the world to practice functional medicine and share my message. But travel can make it hard to stick to my health routines and feel my best, so I'm always looking for ways to make it easier. One of my favorite new finds is a red light therapy device called Juve Go, which is specifically for travel. It's wireless and it can easily slip into your bag or backpack. Red light therapy is a super gentle, non-invasive treatment where a device with medical grade LEDs delivers concentrated light to your skin and your cells. It actually helps boost your mitochondria, collagen production, and even melatonin production all at the same time. I also notice much less jet lag when I use the Juve Go. And it couldn't be easier. I just use the relaxing red light for a few minutes a day, and that's it. With the Juve Go, I can target certain areas like my back if I'm sore from flying and want to reduce inflammation, or my face for collagen production if I'm looking more tired than usual. Juve also has a bunch of other really cool products, including ones that provide full body red and near infrared light therapy. To check them out, head over to juve.com forward slash pharmacy. That's J O O V V.com forward slash pharmacy, F A R M A C Y. Once you're there, you'll use a special bonus code that the Juve team is giving away to my listeners. Use the code pharmacy, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, to check out. This is one of the simplest tools to support your health on the go, and I hope you'll check it out and see why I love using Juve when I travel. Welcome to the Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Mark Heim. That's pharmacy with an F, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, a place for conversations that matter. And today's conversation, I think, matters to many because it's about health disparities and lack of equity in healthcare and the disproportionate suffering uh, for the poor and minorities in this country that is really unconscionable in a society that is focused on um, e equity and wealth, which we certainly don't have evenly distributed. And our guests today are an extraordinary crew from Cleveland Clinic. We're here at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland. <laughs> There's many Cleveland Clinics. Uh, our first guest is Dr. Charles Maudlin, who's been a great partner with us at the Center for Functional Medicine. He's a kidney transplant surgeon, a urologist. He's the executive director of the Minority Health Program here. And he's the lead for public health at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, he's on the member of the Board of Governors, the Board of Trustees. He's a big shot here at Cleveland <laughs> Clinic. Uh, and I'm just honored that he's been interested in our work. And we've been partnering with creating a minority men's health program at part of the Cent uh, Functional Medicine Center to help minority men, which are often neglected and don't talk about their health and aren't comfortable sharing, uh, putting them in a group that allows them to actually get healthy together. Uh, and we were very skeptical that they would want to do it or participate, but they all want more and keep coming back. So he's uh, been named by the Atlanta Post as one of the top 21 black doctors in America. He's graduated from Northwestern University and Northwestern University Medical School. And he's really an extraordinary physician and leader in healthcare. Uh, Dr. Lenore Osario is uh, also here at Cleveland Clinic. She's an uh, internal medicine physician. She received her license from the state of Ohio in 2001, and she's been instrumental in opening Lutheran Hospital Hispanic Clinic, which connects to Spanish-speaking patients uh, and Spanish-speaking physicians. Um, she really has a, a place in her heart for the Hispanic population here in Cleveland and is really focused on trying to create better and improve services. And the other day we were part of a meeting which was trying to understand how we better serve these needs and address these health disparities in this community. And lastly, but not least, is Tani Jones, who uh, has been here with me since the beginning of the Center for Functional Medicine <clears throat> and has literally helped me stand it up and is a pioneer in thinking about how to bring 
functional medicine into Cleveland Clinic, into the world, and has developed something called Functioning for Life, which is a powerful model for community-based solutions where it put people in groups and helps them uh, create healthcare change. She's uh, been leading our center here and is really, I think, one of the, the most uh, guiding lights here at the clinic uh, and in her community. And we've done a lot of community stuff together. We've worked with uh, cooking classes in underserved areas. We're creating a program at Langston Hughes, which is really serving the needs of these really poorly served uh, patients, African-Americans who are struggling with obesity and diabetes. So just as a little background, um, welcome all to the podcast. Um, Thank you. I'm so glad to have you all here and be able to talk about these issues. I just wanna give a little background about where we stand as a country. You know, public health research has documented that racial disparities in health and healthcare is a real problem in this country. Um, when you're looking at the 10 leading causes of death, including cancer, stroke, and heart disease, if you're African-American or Hispanic, you're far more likely to get sick and die than white Americans. Um, they have a lot of negative health predictors. Genetically, there's more predisposition to these diseases. There's lack of access. There's lack of understanding of healthy health behaviors. And, uh, and I think there's just discrimination throughout the healthcare system and also, um, you know, in our policies. Uh, and when you look at the data, it's pretty scary. African-Americans are twice as likely to get diabetes. They're probably, uh, you can tell me more, Dr. Modlin, they're probably like three or four times more likely to have a need for kidney transplants. They're more likely to have amputations. Um, if you're Afri African-American, you're more likely to, you know, be obese and, and have more infant deaths and, and so many different issues that also affect the Hispanic community, like diabetes mm -hmm. and obesity and hypertension. And, you know, it's a problem of access. You know, these communities don't have access to good food. They don't have education. They have culturally embedded ideas that keep them from actually getting out of that situation. Uh, you know, when, when you're looking at food insecurity, these communities are far more likely to be food insecure. I think 22% versus an average national food insecurity rate of 12 percent um and they don't have supermarkets you know we walked around cleveland here uh tawny and i went around to a place called rallies which is a very poor quality mcdonald's that they wouldn't even have mcdonald's because that's an upscale restaurant in these communities uh and it was frightening they had you know lack of access to anything that was resembling food in there and uh you know hispanics and african-americans are less likely to own cars um and, and they're less likely to have grocery stores in their communities. Uh, and when you look at the data, if you don't have access to these things, you're not able to actually change your life. So I wanna sort of get into this because it's, it's, um, you know, it's sort of embedded in our policies, it's embedded in our healthcare system, and it's sort of this neglected area where we really live in the third world in this country, in these communities. It's not really the, what we'd expect as part of American healthcare. So uh, Dr. Sari and Madlin, you know, um, these com communities are really impacted by health disparities. What, what do you think the biggest reasons for these disparities are? Yeah. Okay, well, I think uh, speaking for the Hispanic population, we tend to live um, in a tight-knit community. In general, we live more in a impoverished area. Uh, like you said, we don't own cars, so we rely on public transportation. Our Hispanic culture, too, we brought up the women that we take care of the family first, not mm -hmm. ourselves. Not themselves. And then the men are brought up to provide, uh, and uh, they don't want to miss work. I have a lot of men that do factory jobs, and they get points taken out um, from their jobs, so they're afraid of getting these points that can lead to them being fired. Mm -hmm. So they won't come even if we have evening or Saturday hours. So mm -hmm. our culture is that we take care of the family, but not ourselves. So 
Hispanics are really unlikely to get preventive, such as mammograms, colonoscopy, pap tests, blood mm. work. And there's also this culture of faith. The church is very central, as it is in the African-American population, but God will heal, heal me. I, I feel good. Uh-huh. I don't have to go to the doctor. Not dying I'm, yet. I'm so. not dying. I'm, <laughs> I'm young. Um, mm. There's nothing wrong in my family. And so. You mentioned they, they're afraid to go, and they won't go to the last minute often. Right, right. Yeah, because um, they're afraid to, to lose their jobs. They're afraid of they're going to find something, and I don't have time to keep taking off work because if I'm a diabetic, almost two thirds of Hispanics are, more, are likely to be diabetic. Mm-hmm. And um, two thirds of Hispanics mm-hmm, are likely to be mm-hmm. diabetic. Yeah, and one third are likely to die from complications of diabetes. And when I started my Hispanic clinic, I'm Bolivian by descent, but the, most of the patients I see are Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. and I was seeing people in their third. 30s, 40s, getting stents, being on dialysis, mm-hmm. um, getting amputations. And I'm thinking it's, I started practicing in 2000. I'm like, why are we still getting amputations if we have so many medications, mm-hmm. so many hospitals? But I, I just wasn't understanding the disparities in the Hispanic uh, community. And, and, and so besides the fear of losing their job or mm-hmm. the focus on taking care of themselves and not and on their family and not themselves, mm-hmm. you know, what are the other drivers that are the social determinants that are limiting their ability to get care or to actually do self-care. Right. Um, it's not just access to our healthcare system, but it's the 80% of the things that happen in their community that are driving them towards disease that aren't the healthcare. Right, and, and it's a big part, like you were mentioning, is the food. Um, mm. There's not, there's bodegas or little convenience stores that have the foods from Puerto Rico, let's say, and so they're not eating healthy because they're afraid to lose the culture. Mm. Um, also in our communities, in our Hispanic communities, there's a lot of fast food places. Mm-hmm. So if you have a limited budget, if you can go to McDonald's for five bucks and get a lot of food versus getting kale versus getting quinoa is, mm-hmm. is a different price range. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, and also if you don't have a doctor that understands your culture, because a lot of Hispanics, if we're very touchy, we're very close. If a doctor sits way far and is at the computer and not looking at you, a patient will not come back. You could be the best um, board certified, have so yeah, many yeah. degrees, but if you're not close proximity and you're not paying attention mm-hmm. to this, the patient will think that you don't care about them. <clears throat> a lot of Hispanics too want their families to be in the exam room. Mm-hmm. So um, some doctors get intimidated. Why are there five people? Um, so they, if you don't let those family members in, they won't come back to you either. Or if you don't speak the language or have a way to translate um, mm. why you're taking certain medications. Mm. Because if you're a diabetic, you're gonna be on five, six medications already. And they, if you don't explain why they're taking that, they're just mm. not gonna take. Mm. So Dr. Marlin, what's your sense of what the reasons for the disparities are in the African-American community? So, you know, you touched on lack of access to, to quality care. I mean, that, that's that's a huge one. Poverty obviously uh, plays into that. So they're, they're a health system. Factors there are there are um, health provider factors there are patient driven factors genetic hereditary factors but also health literacy plays a major role a lot of times in the black community um, people don't necessarily know what they need to know to take you know good health care of themselves uh, for example you know black men don't necessarily know that they should start screening for prostate cancer at the age of 40 mm. whereas white men unless they have a strong family history need to start screening not until they're about 55 years of age. Mm-hmm. So health literacy, lack of awareness and knowledge of how to take you know, care of oneself, 
plays a major role in, in, in the um, in what we're seeing in terms of the incidence of the healthcare disparities that we see. You know, hypertension is a silent killer. We all know that can un, untreated hypertension can lead to heart attacks, strokes, kidney disease, peripheral vascular disease. And they just don't go in to get checked. They don't get checked out. They, they think if you don't have any signs or symptoms or pain or discomfort. I feel fine. <laughs> you feel fine. I mean, prostate cancer, you don't have to have any signs or symptoms or pain or discomfort to have prostate cancer. Nowadays, most prostate cancer is diagnosed with a blood test. You know, the PSA, the prostate specific antigen blood test. And we also like to do a, what we call a digital rectal examination. Mm -hmm. That's fun. A lot of black <laughs> men, and we don't actually have to do the examination, um, but you know, the, the, the blood test is more sensitive. But a lot of black men, if they think you're gonna do that examination on them, they, they think you're gonna violate them, they don't wanna have any part of that. You know? yeah. So there, there's a lot of uh, fear and anxiety about that examination also. Sure. Um, Spoken as a good urologist. You know, so um, <laughs> a lot of um, lack of health literacy, a lot of myth and misconception, a lot of stories about what's gonna happen when you go to the doctor. Mm. There's also a lot of distrust that <clears throat> many uh, African-Americans and minorities have uh, about going to the doctor. Um, we've all heard of the Tuskegee syphilis yeah. experiment. Can you just um, give a background on what that is yes. for people so, who... So that was where the um, Department of Health and Human Services, um, the, the um, Public Health Service um, Department of the United States, um, that was back in the 20s or 30s, I forget the exact mm -hmm. decade, where they uh, actually treated roughly about 800 men, black men. It went up until the 70s. Yeah, yes, right. Uh, they, they followed um, uh, several hundred men, uh, black men, uh, who they knew had syphilis. Um, because they wanted to study the natural consequence of untreated syphilis in this patient population. Mm -hmm. And during that time period... And they um, had penicillin. They could have cured them, they, but they didn't. Oh, yeah. They, they actually had the cure. The, the cure was available. They could have cured uh, these men. And actually, um, during that time period, the men suffered. Many men died, and they, they actually passed this disease to their uh, partners. Mm -hmm. um, and the word got out in terms of what was going on. And that spread across the black community in terms of what was going on, the experimentation. Yes. And so that still resonates amongst the black community and other, other minority whole communities. The story of Henrietta Lacks is also oh, a yeah, of that. You exactly. Know. Mm -hmm. You know, experimentation. And, and you know, so a lot of people are, are in the black community are, are really fearful of going to the doctor. And, and they're fearful that the doctor is going to use them as a, a guinea pig. Mm -hmm. um, and that really contributes to a lot of the healthcare disparities that we see because a lot of the medications on the market uh, have been developed and designed and tested just in for white people for right. for especially just in white men yeah. right in particular a lot of the disparities that we're talking about actually exist in, in women also yeah um, but um, no so a variety of reasons for healthcare disparities some of them are, are a lot of their uh, there are a lot of genetic determinants of some of these disparities that we talk about also mm. so um, Tawny you, you um, and I work together a lot and you're you know, you're someone who grew up in the inner city in Cleveland. You saw firsthand what these communities are like. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you grew up in, a, in an underserved community and you saw the challenges mm -hmm. that are faced by the people who live there and, and the sort of legacy of repeated cycles of this thing happening over and over with poverty and lack of access and obesity and disease. I mean, we were recently at, a, at an event where there were a, young, a bunch of young students learning how to cook. It was a culinary school as part of the community college. And this young woman was there and she was an African-American woman who lived, I think, in the projects and, you know, said her mother had to take two buses, two hours round, sorry, four buses, two hours round trip just to buy vegetables for her family. And then in her family, there were people with amputations and who couldn't walk and diabetes and kidney failure. And it, 
it was just heartbreaking to hear because yeah. even though you know um, there's some level of awareness, people have a hard time getting out of that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that it's just because people are lazy or they don't want to do anything for themselves or, you know, they don't want to get healthy and they don't just want to have their soda and Doritos. Like, how do you address that? Yeah. So I, I definitely don't think it's that they're lazy or unmotivated or don't want to uh, move in the right direction. I, I think we have a broad assumption in society that all opportunity is equal. And that's not true. So racism, um, unconscious bias, um, prejudice, and stereotyping all play a role in the opportunities that are available to individuals. And if you just think about um, unemployment, for example, in, compared to Cauca in comparison to Caucasians, African-Americans are still at risk for the same level of unemployment today as they were in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. That's a reality. So let's talk about the cascading effect of being unemployed. Well, now I'm at risk for poverty. If I'm at risk for poverty, then I probably don't have um, access to, um, or I, I won't be able to retain my housing or transportation, um, or I won't have access to those things. And so if I don't have that, then how am I going to get to the grocery store to get healthier food options? You know, taking a bus, that young lady's story was my story as well. I remember taking, a, we had five children and two adults in my home growing up in the inner city and taking a bus and carrying bags, um, you know, as much as you could put in your arms was what we had to work with. Mm. And so you're, you opt towards getting processed foods or the le least, yeah, least healthy <laughs> options because they have a, sh you know, fresh fruit foods and fruits and vegetables have a shelf life. Yeah. And so, you know, you're going to get the sugar laden foods that'll keep you full and, 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 you know, you feel satiated, you feel really good about that, but you don't realize the impact is having on your health. So very much a cascading effect. And then if you're- Do they connect the dots and say, okay, I'm eating these foods and this is why I'm overweight or have diabetes? Not at all. Not, not, not in most cases because- we, we, we believe, okay, well, that seems like a- you know, obvious thing to most people, and but we're it, really, it really is. It's not. It's we're not. healthcare workers. And, and then you also have to think when you're in that mind space that I've lost this, I don't have that, I don't have access, the opportunity I was passed over for that, you're probably not seeking out the social support that you need in order to help you manage those issues and concerns. And if you don't have that social connection, then you're probably going to move into a space of psychological distress and depression. Mm -hmm. And so once you get there, it's just a matter of time before you move into isolation and, and that feeling of loneliness. And, and, and that's, you know, for many people, the point where they just give up. And so it's not that they don't want to do better. I know a lot of hardworking people who are struggling to make ends meet. Um, I interact with individuals every single day who are gainfully employed, but struggling to make ends meet. And their reality is, well, uh, health, my health takes a back seat when I'm trying to figure out if my lights are going to be on next week and if my gas is going to be on next week. So those are realities. Uh, we, we have in our community, African-American community, and I'm sure it's the same for Dr. Osario uh, in the Hispanic community, we've just normalized um, these feelings of um, not having or depression or discontent with life. We, we just deal with it. And as she said, we rely on our spirituality to keep us grounded and keep us from 
you know, totally checking out of life. So is there, is there any insight in these communities about the way in which our society, our government policies, uh, food corporations are targeting them in ways that are making them more sick and fat and, and disabled? <laughs> I mean, we know, for example, that uh, based on good data from, from Yale, that, that in the targeted marketing, it's focused on African-Americans and mm -hmm. Hispanics mm -hmm. for all the worst foods. Mm -hmm. We know that, you know, the, the uh, availability in these communities is less of these foods. We know that the grocery stores don't want to go there. We know that, that there's a level of sort of almost also internalized racism where, where they don't actually know this is happening. And they think this is yeah. their normal culture. And I, I just was sharing a story earlier about a Hopi chief who I was on a rafting trip with. And, you know, he, he was very overweight. I mean, severely overweight, diabetic, on insulin, was throwing up, sick, just walking down to the boat. And I said, well, you can fix this. And he's like, well, how? I said, well, you have to sort of give up starch and sugar and flour. He's like, well, you know, how are we gonna have our traditional Hopi ceremonies? And I'm like, well, you know, what do you mean? He says, well, I, I, I mean, we have, we have uh, foods, we have our ceremonial foods. I'm like, well, what are those foods? He goes, well, cake and cookies and pie. And I'm like, those are not traditional. <laughs> so, that that didn't think, happen you know, I have a friend, yeah. a friend is an African-American guy and he's very into health and good food. And he goes to the South where he's from and, and his family makes fun of him for eating all the white people food. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what they don't realize in these communities is that they are eating the white people's food. food. Right, <laughs> yes. right, that right. It is all this processed right. industrial yeah. food is basically another form of racism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And how do, how do you address that in these communities? How do you get them to sort of wake up and say, oh, this is not, you know, what's good for us. And this is keeping us down that our kids can't learn, that we can't focus, that we get all these chronic illnesses, that we can't work because we're disabled. I mean, how do they see that? It, it's, it's a tough battle because um, the media, so even if you're on YouTube or you're on your um, iPad or your phone, there's there's a lot of information with food. And in our cultures too, we have celebrities that are endorsing um, junk. junk. Um, so we have Sprite, we have Burger King, and our young people look up to these uh, mm -hmm. African-American and Hispanic celebrities. And so that has to be one of the reasons that we have to stop those endorsements because kids are looking up to these celebrities. Well, you know, LeBron James looks good, you know, and he's, he's drinking that Sprite like, before he goes on the court. Right, right. So that. that has to stop. And I, I do, we don't do a good job of educating people about sugar grams and fat grams and reading labels. So we try to do that uh, with each office visit as well to really know what you're putting in your body mm. um, because there's no way we're going to make a headway with obesity or diabetes or hypertension if we're not being accountable what we're feeding ourselves. Yeah. I think we need to start in, young, in, in the schools with the young mm -hmm. kids also probably, yeah. you know, educate yeah. the young kids. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the same is true. I mean, the, the advertisers that target the black community f for smoking as well. Yeah. We've, mm -hmm. we've seen that in the past That's, as well. Yeah. Yeah, so true. I mean, I was recently at an uh, underserved school in Cleveland here, and one of the, you know, they failed, got an F the last 15 years in their school district. And they, you know, I walked in, said to the, the CEO of the school system, I said, well, can I go see the kitchen? And so we walked through this massive kitchen in this high school. There was not a stove or an oven. There was oh, a no. deep fryer. Okay. They were re reheating ovens, like microwaves. And, I and he didn't even realize that. I'm like, look, where, where's the cooking stuff? Mm -hmm. Nowhere to cook anything, mm -hmm. deep Warming fryers up. and microwaves. Mm -hmm. And then I walked down the hall. I mean, he said 43% of those kids are absent from school. 1% are ready to go to college and they're prepared by the time they graduate, One which is 1% 1%. is ready. And, and I walked down the hall and there was this young Hispanic girl walking down the hall 
with a double fisting, like slushy in one hand, it was 32 ounces, and another 32 ounce soda in the other hand, and she was very overweight. And it's like, it's just so embedded in the schools. Mm. 50% of them have fast food in the schools, like Domino's Pizza and mm. McDonald's Monday and Taco Bell Tuesday and- Gatorade, Gatorade. Prison, yeah. yeah. And they, you know, they have these competitive foods, which is, you know, mm. kid has to compete between a, you know, pizza and a healthy food. They're not gonna pick the healthy mm. food. No. And and it's, it, you know, 80% of contracts with soda companies have ads in the, in the stalls of the bathroom, like Coca-Cola ads and, you know, that it's just, it, it's so embedded and it's so deliberate and it's so uh, insidious that it becomes part of their culture. And they essentially like mm. hook them like addicts early on. And that's right. You're right, Dr. Model in schools like there, that's the place to start, but it's, it's very tough. Cause yeah, I think, I think, I think what you're doing here today to, to raise awareness in the minority communities that this is a social injustice as you've <clears throat> named it and yeah. you've termed it, you know, actually, I, I think it was in, in, uh, 1964, I forget the exact year, Dr. King actually said of all the forms of injustice, inequities in healthcare are the most shocking and the most inhumane. Yeah. I mean, of all these civil rights activities in which he was engaged, he said these health disparities are the most yeah. shocking and the most inhumane. So I, I think what we're doing here today to, to raise awareness that this is a social injustice is a, is a starting point. Yes. Because I, I think uh, heretofore, I think you know the minority communities have not really seen this as a form of racism. Mm -mm. I, I think this is the starting point where we can actually make a big difference. I agree. I, I think it's a form of yeah. food racism. Yes, I'll, I'll add to that. Um, I personally had not heard that perspective until you raised it. Yes, mm -hmm. and to have more physicians, uh, because a physician in the black any community is a well-respected individual. You're considered <clears throat> smart. You're considered at the top of your game. And so you, uh, as an individual, you know, getting in front, on stage, in front of African Americans, and I've seen this done dozens of times, um, they're captivated by that perspective you bring that you are being targeted. You are, um, uh, these companies are going after your race. You're, it's, it's a form of uh, prejudice that you might not see. Yeah. You consider it to be what's quoted as white people food, um, but it's not. It's all about food. individual choice. Yeah, food is not white or black. You know, it's like language is not white or black. These are not white or black things. These are um, true issues that we just have not been able to address. And and if I recall, when I was in school. Um, we never had access to healthy food options. I never remember having a salad as part of my yeah. lunch. I never yeah. remember mm -hmm. having a choice of vegetables or a choice of fruits uh, for my lunch. Pizza was prime hamburger, similar to what we saw in the school system that we visited. You know, mm -hmm. uh, all the apples were sitting there, but the hamburgers were almost gone. Yep. The French fries yeah. were almost gone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the students were there and they were all, you know, 90% of what we saw, the students were overweight, but I, I can't blame them because they have not been exposed. Their parents have not been exposed. So we, we have a long way to go on education and we have to be comfortable naming it yeah what the problem is and that's where we lack nobody wants to call it out i mean it's true a food our food system is a form of social injustice yeah. and it mm -hmm. particularly affects the poor and minorities in this country mm -hmm. in ways that are you know causing so many deaths i mean we're talking about gun violence and that's real i mean you yeah. know seventy thousand people die mm -hmm. every year from guns but you know seven hundred thousand people die yeah. every year just from bad food from heart disease alone and when you add it all up it's literally 
half the country is suffering, maybe more African Americans. You know, eighty percent of African American women are overweight. You know, it's mm -hmm. and I, and I, and I think. What you pointed out also, what you'd written, your zip code is the bigger determinant of your health outcome than your genetic code. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, moving forward, I'm actually going to, <laughs> to, to actually be a, a champion in, in terms of getting the word out about this social injustice. I mean, you know, we could, we're, we're the leaders in, the, in yeah. this area. Right. And, and I mean, I, I applaud you for actually bringing this to the table and yes. to our attention. Um, because we can make a difference. Yeah, it's yeah. Hu it's huge. I yeah. mean, there was a Baltimore pastor, an African American pastor, who said, "You know, we're losing more people mm -hmm. to sweets than the streets," mm -hmm. and yeah. and that's really true. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not something that these communities really understand. Mm -hmm. And it's it's insidious. You know, like in New York State, when uh, Bloomberg wanted to pass a law that was going to prohibit large amounts of volume sodas, so you, had, yes. you couldn't sell any yeah. more than the six ounce mm -hmm. soda. Guess who came out against him? I don't remember that. the African American and Hispanic, Hispanic community. Oh. Yeah. Why? Because the NAACP and Hispanic Federation are funded by Coca-Cola. Oh. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. why? Why are food stamps, which are supposed to help food insecurity and help provide nutrition, spending? Why are we spending seven billion dollars a year on soda, which is thirty billion dollars a year, thirty million servings a year for the poor? Or why are we like? spending 75 billion, most of which is for junk food, mm -hmm. it's making these patients sick and fat instead of helping them eat real food. Why? Be because the uh, big food hunger networks, which oppose any restriction on any of these junk foods or soda and mm -hmm. food stamps are funded by the food industry. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a really insidious thing. And I remember being in, watch in uh, Atlanta when the movie Fed Up came out about sugar and obesity and mm -hmm. I was met with Bernice King and, I, and she was very excited about this. And she talked about how nonviolence also means nonviolence to yourself mm -hmm. yes. as, a, as a value. Mm -hmm. And we decided to show the movie at the King Center. And a few days later, after we organized the whole event, I got a call saying, no, we can't have the showing at the King Center. I'm like, why? She mm -hmm. said, well, you know, King Center is funded by Coca-Cola in Atlanta. <laughs> I went to meet with the dean of um, Spelman College, which is the largest African-American college in, 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 the, in the country, I think, and for women. And the dean said to me, 50% of the entering class of African-American women has a chronic disease, hypertension, diabetes, obesity. Mm -hmm. These are 18 year old girls. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I said, well, why are there Coke machines all over the ca right. campus, mm -hmm. dispensers and fountains? And it's like, it's like a carnival. And she said, well, because you know a lot of our funding comes from Coke. And one of the board of trustees is from very high up person in Coca-Cola for Spelman College, oh, yeah. an African-American woman. And I just like, how, how does the community not rise up and say, how do we stop this? Right. Hmm. Because for, I, I think the sugar industry is causing a genocide in our, yeah. in our mm -hmm. population, you yeah. know, and uh, uh, sugar and fat are, are addictive. The more you eat, the more you want, um, and you're craving it, and you don't even know you're doing it to yourself. Um, and that's the hard battle too with patients because they feel like with all the anxiety, depression, and stress, they feel relieved when they for have- For a minute. For a minute, right, yeah. right. But well, they eat more because they want, it's like a heroin, right? They, they mm -hmm. want that high again and feel relieved. So it's, it's very hard to, to stop it in our patients. It's true. I mean, in a sense, it's a new form of slavery. And, mm -hmm. and slavery actually, in part, was built for the need to produce sugar cane. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of our slave trade was driven by mm -hmm. the need to produce more sugar. And now that very sugar is causing another form of, of of slavery and and I think injustice, it's it's pretty scary. So, how do you think um, we can be sort of begin to address these and these big issues and 
get these communities to sort of wake up and say, hey, wait a minute, we're not going to let the man do this to us anymore. Mm. We're going to rise up and and understand this as a social justice issue. And you know whether you know we've got Cesar Chavez about farm workers protection. You've mm-hmm. got you know groups around Black Lives Matter, right, right. advocating mm. for justice in different ways. Or environmental racism is now understood as a thing, but food racism is not really understood. No, and I mean, you bringing it up is, is an excellent point. And I think there there has to be education in medical schools for future doctors mm. because that was never taught. I think the churches have to play a big role. Mm. I think the pastor should have a sermon about that um, because uh, if we say, you know, your, your husband would be alive today, your child would be alive today, your uncle wouldn't have to have bilateral amputations mm-hmm. if they gave up the soda, if they gave up the Twinkies and uh, sugary cereals. If we made it personal and say that this is, we're trying to create memories in our, our life and mm-hmm. be a healthy, we don't want ADHD, we don't want to, the, the lack of exercise too is, is yeah. amazing to me because people say, I have back pain, I have knee pain, I can't exercise. I'm like, yes, you. You can, you can get up. We, we live such a sedentary lifestyle where everything, we have apps that deliver food. So, I mean, I don't under, like, I want us to, because we were just killing ourselves. We're creating, in the Hispanic community, there's so much fatty liver, which can lead to cirrhosis. Yeah. Yeah. And the amount of liver transplants and deaths, I mean. Liver to, transplants are from sugar. Yes, yes, yes. Flour, right? And but, I th- we, but we have the apps that deliver bad food, I guess. Yeah, I don't know that yeah, any apps deliver yeah, that's good what I'm food. Saying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some stack quinoa to deliver. No, 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 these, these are all fast food. New York, you food. can get that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Not here. And I think we need, we need to stop the sugar industry. I mm-hmm. mean, they're lining our politicians. Nobody's protecting us. Mm-hmm. I, um, there's a, a website called The Dirty Dozen that shows what's um, full of pesticides. Why, why is that? that? Why, why do we have to buy non-GMO and, and know what pesticides? Like, I think if I go to a supermarket and I want to buy fruit, I shouldn't have to decide if, okay, do, organic or not organic, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm. why is nobody protecting us? I think that's why cancer is on a rise, too, because our food is contaminated, but our politicians are not doing anything about it. Yeah, and the other thing that people don't realize is that a lot of these health disparities exist in food and farm workers, which comprise more workers than any other industry. There's 20 million food and farm workers, mm-hmm. and they're often brown and black, and they're often unprotected. And the on the Fair Labor Act, which is in the 30s under Roosevelt, which was developed to protect workers, mm-hmm. did not cover food and farm workers. Why? Because they were African-American for the most part, so they weren't protected. And that's why they often earn less than minimum wage. They have no health benefits. You know, we have to cover them with Medicaid and food stamps. And they're often at high risk for diseases such as uh, pesticide-related mm-hmm. conditions. And, and, and they're struggling. And again, we're eating all this food, but what is happening to people who actually provide the food? That's a whole ne- another level of, of health disparity that exists in those brown and black communities. But I think we have to help people connect the dots. Um, we know this because we're healthcare workers. We expose, we're exposed to the impact of what unhealthy options do to our bodies. We can suggest to someone that if you don't change your diet, you're probably going to die. That's hard for a person to receive. Yeah. It's hard for a person to understand. How, where, they want to know the why. How, how? How do I change considering my limitations? You want me to exercise? There are no parks in my community. I can't walk to the corner Not because yeah, this, I can't send my children out because, you know, human traffic, human trafficking is at an all time. high. I just watched that on the news last night. Yeah. So people are aware of their surroundings and the issues that are plaguing their communities and them as individuals. 
And so they start to layer these excuses on excuse, excuse on excuse, and not to their fault, but in, in their world, it's their reality. And they don't have a way out, they don't have an option. And I think this is where the community-based talks, um, where we get out front, in front of these individuals and start to share very candidly, share this information and say, you know, this is the number of patients that have died as a result of this. And let me tell you how that could have been prevented. Mm -hmm. And really um, have uh, an opportunity for them to share in that conversation. We don't see that in our communities. We'll do a health fair where we have one, you know, one snapshot in time where we bring that information to them. And then, you know, months or another year will go by before we get back in front of those individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think that this needs to be a more concerted effort where it's ongoing. There should be weekly meetings, whether it's at the church, whether it's at the community center, whether it's, you know, in a space where they feel comfortable going to, where we can share <clears throat> all of this information um, in, in a way that they understand it. You know, health literacy is real, so they don't necessarily receive it well from physicians, but we're the community workers who can help with this. Mm -hmm. Those, you know, coaches or individuals who are just inspired to be in the health space and who want to, you know, partner with healthcare organizations. Um, so, you, you, you know, you, you recently started with the Center for Functional Medicine, this yeah. program at Langston Hughes. Mm -hmm with the very underserved African-American community. Can you tell us how that's going, what the response has been? Because I think people say, oh, people don't really want to get better. They just like the way that they're going and they don't like, maybe they know already what to do. They're just not doing it. When tell you know, us what, what happened. Yeah, so when you know better, you do better. And I'm a firm believer that people will do the right thing if you guide them in the right way. And so we were able to partner. I, one kudos I will give to the Cleveland Clinic is it has a strong footprint in its community. And it is really focused on community-based initiatives to help improve the health and provide self-preventative uh, measures uh, and teaching and education uh, for individuals that we would either serve out there or we're gonna serve in here in the hospital setting. Yeah. So <laughs> one way or the other, Early we're gonna late, get them. Right? <laughs> yeah, so we can take a, a preemptive strike and, and do it the right way or we can see them on the back end. And you know, I think we, prefer the the, the former and so how are, those, how are those people responding in that group? very well um you know we were like reticent out, right? yeah uh, <laughs> so we were reticent about offering a shared medical a group visit appointment in this underserved area um, in this community center we were a little bit unsure of how the uptake would be uh, but these were individuals who were somewhat invested in their health because they do go to the community center. There's a gym there. They do line dancing and they do some yoga and you may see a few on the treadmill. So they have some sense of, OK, I need to do something differently. But we were able as functional medicine to bring the medical management component to them and say, you know what, we're going to dive into your nutrition. What are you eating? If you leave from yoga and line dancing and you go to McDonald's down the street, um, you probably just undid all of that effort. And you have to be comfortable to say that. So we spent a significant amount of time training our team on what the issues were in the community, where the disparities were, what the um, challenges were as far as the food desert and their access and their understanding of what the concerns were why individuals weren't opting towards healthier lifestyles. And these individuals who were selected to be in the program, we only had capacity for 15 due to the space, uh, and now we have a waiting list. They have been so um, engaged in their health. They didn't know what a health coach was. 
they didn't know that sleep was tied to uh, their overall well-being. And they didn't know that stress, ma stress management was important for them to help their blood pressure. They had no clue that movement and simple moving, movements that they can do at home, even if you can't get outside, that they were able to do those and it would affect their health. So we were able to uh, really drill down into their concerns, create a safe space for them to come together, share their stories, uh, get provide access to food for them. So again, sometimes we have to help individuals. So they're liking connect the food. The they're not. They're loving the food. It. They're not resisting they it. They want to learn. They are eager. Um, to not only learn, but to bring their families in and to bring their friends in. And so I visited the center and I, one of the ladies tapped me on the shoulder and she said, I need you to make sure you get my family on that wait list. And so now it's, you know, creating a demand that wasn't there before for these types of services in the community. <clears throat> uh, so it's not that people don't want it. It's that they don't know that they have access to it. They don't they haven't been exposed to it. But once we Which do hard the to work, believe, right? For for the average person mm -hmm. listening, I imagine it's hard to believe that you know people don't know that soda is bad for you, or don't know that eating a lot of processed food is not good for you. LeBron and, James drinks it. She just yeah. you well, know. So this yeah. is my vision. <laughs> he's got he's got muscles, and, and, right? And diet and diet coke is you know it's a diet. So why can't I have a diet coke mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. unless someone is explaining to them, which is what our dietitians and our mm -hmm. coaches go in to do? <clears> unless <throat> someone says no, mm -hmm. actually that's worse than a regular coke. Yeah, they don't have that sense. It's zero calories on the label. Well, because, because a lot of the messaging goes out there. It's your fault. It's just about personal responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. If you used to eat all that junk and you exercise and got off your couch, you'd be fine. And that's what the food industry tells us. That's what our government tells us mm -hmm. that all calories are the same. And that if you just manage that, you'll be fine. And it, in truth, it's not so simple. No, and no. I was shocked, you know, when I worked with, it was a poor white uh, family in, in South Carolina, how they just did not know what they were eating and they didn't know what to do and they were desperate to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And once they got a little bit of information, they literally were able to transform their lives. And the, the young boy was, you know, morbidly obese. He, I mean, it was like, had diabetes practically at 16 years old, adult onset diabetes. And he was like, you know, he was worried because I said, you're 50% body fat and a guy should be 10% mm -hmm. over 20 is terrible. And he's like, am I going to be 100%? I'm no, you have like bones and you have some <laughs> muscle. But, but he, got, he got to understand what was going on. He wasn't stupid. He says, but I feel like I'm an alcoholic being working in a bar, yeah. living in the community I'm in. But he was able to figure it out. He lost 138 pounds and now he's in medical school. Right. Oh, but, wow. And if you just give people a chance, and he was one of the, you know, in a poor community that was done food stamps and disability, they mm -hmm. had no education. I mean, it was just, it was really an extraordinary story, which kind of helped me understand that it's not about personal responsibility. No. It's about being in a toxic food environment, not knowing that you are and not knowing how to get out of it. Right. I saw that story, but <clears throat> the thing about the Langston Hughes thing, you, um, when you, when you go in there and educate the community, you, you do it in a special way. Mm -hmm. You're not going in there, you're not accusatory, you're not pointing the finger. You're not blaming them. You, they're, they're, you talk about the food deserts, but but you also talk about the food swamps also. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, it's food apartheid. Yeah. It's yeah. food apartheid. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be culturally sensitive, culturally competent. You have to establish a relationship, you know, yeah. with the community. And, and so I just want to emphasize that you have to be very careful in terms of how you engage the community because you could actually do more harm. Yeah. And, and um, you know, you could really. Um, you, you have to be, be able to resonate with the community. Yeah, they, you know, it says uh, 
you know, nobody, nobody knows how much, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care, you know? Yeah. Right. So that, that's very, very important. Yeah. Racial, yeah. Racially yeah. and ethnically sensitive yes. is my first step yes. in creating right. programs in mm. our community and creating pro mm. programs for our providers. Mm. Because I think about the patient experience first. The patient mm. is always paramount. Yes. yes. You know, yes. for, I know we were trained at the Cleveland Clinic. The patient mm. is our North Star. Right. Mm. So it's the most important person that walks through our doors. Mm -hmm. And so when mm. I think about that, mm. I want them to reclaim their life. I want them to have access to a program that makes them feel comfortable coming into. These individuals at Langston Hughes mm. come back every week. Yeah. And and this is a 10 week program, but they have made the commitment because we are one removing the barriers mm. and we're creating a space where it's very comfortable for them to come in and learn. We're not using terminology that mm -hmm. would be offensive to them. Right. We're not, and, and, and we're not putting. I to make sure I don't. Yeah. <laughs> we're not putting information in front of them, you know, 12 syllable words that they would have no idea. We mm. go over their laboratory testing because you hear H1, uh, um, H1C and you hear hemoglobin and you hear lipid panel and you hear uh, all of these terms and it's just overwhelming mm. and you think, oh my God, is that bad, good or right, indifferent? Right. But you don't want to ask your doctor yeah. because you feel like, well, he'll mm. think I'm, I'm stupid. stupid. <laughs> and right. so, you know, we have those social stigmas that we carry around mm. with us. So I don't want to do that. But in this space, we just assume that we're going to start everybody at square one. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you what a hemoglobin A1C does to mm. your health. Let people me tell you what a lipid people, people yeah. and they are that was yes. striking to watch mm. them. They're so immersed in this conversation and they're like, oh my God, for years, I've been wondering <laughs> what a lipid panel, that's what that means. And, and they're so, doing it and their blood sugars are dropping yes. and their blood pressure's dropping yeah, and their weight's dropping, weight. they feel better. Mm. That's right? awesome, yeah. And I think, like I was saying before too, um, produce and vegetables are expensive. You, you have to teach people what to do with this and, and mm. that it's simple because you don't wanna spend a lot of money and then it doesn't taste good or I don't yeah, know how right. to cook it. So. Right. Um, doing little set, simple recipes, and it, we try to incorporate in the Hispanic clinic the Puerto Rican flavors. So yeah. it kind of tastes uh, better, actually, yeah. than some of the starchy foods that they have. But we have to show people, we can't assume that they know how to cook these vegetables because it's intergenerational. If, yeah. if you grew up eating processed foods and your grandmother fed you and didn't cook, um, you don't know how to cook vegetables. So, so wait a minute, you're a doctor, mm -hmm. you work at Cleveland Clinic, mm -hmm. and you're teaching people how to make Puerto Rican food. Yes. <laughs> okay. I love Tell it. us more about how you're actually <clears throat> breaking through these barriers. because. Now, that's one of the beautiful things about Cleveland Clinic is mm -hmm. that there's all these innovators here who are thinking out of the box and who are starting to bring food as medicine into their practices. And how, how is that being received and how do you break through the resistance in these populations and get them enrolled? Yeah. It, well, I founded the Hispanic Clinic in 2013 with the blessing of, of Cleveland Clinic. And we... We f I founded it because I wanted to break down the barriers of transportation, of language, of the culture. And we have a lot of uh, doctors there that do um, colonoscopies. We have GIs, we have surgeons, we have um, psychiatrists. Mm. Um, because in the Spanish population too, they don't wanna use a translator to say, I'm having suicidal thoughts or I'm um, depressed because it's shown as a weakness usually. So mm -hmm. they don't want family members also to be translating. And so when I started practicing, I, I was just seeing the high amount of diabetes and, and high cholesterol. And uh, the key, what I found out is the food, um, because there's a lot of starch, there's a lot of fat. There's even a drink called- A lot of refined oils. Refined oils, yes. And there's a drink called Malta, which is like a glorified Pepsi, and it has like 48 grams of sugar. Mm. But that is a staple in the Puerto Rican. Um, so I was just 
you know, taking that away and getting uh, used to the ingredients of the Puerto Rican because I didn't, I didn't grow up eating their, their foods. But that was the impetus to, to deal with this population because otherwise, if I don't deal with the food, I'm just like a dog circling my tail. Well, I will it. never, ever get the hemoglobin A1C, their diabetes right. under control. So you can pound all the medications you want. Yeah, and yeah. And more medicines are not the answer. It's getting at the crux of where are the closest grocery stores? What what can we substitute? And people love quinoa. They're, we're substituting that with the rice. That's well, a Bolivian uh, food, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and so and I told them it's filling just like rice. Or if you don't have money, you can eat more beans, more fiber than mm -hmm. the, because in yeah, but quinoa and beans are cheap. As but if you don't know what it is, yeah. I, I grew right. up. I didn't know what quinoa was until I grew up and became an adult. Yeah. So if you've never been exposed to that, I didn't have avocado until I was an adult. Yeah, that's true. Although the quinoa story is kind of tragic because it's become a in hip food. Right. And now the people in those countries that grow it can't afford it because yes. the price has gone right. up and they're all eating processed rice and other food yes. and they're all gaining weight and becoming obese. So it's, it's like these sort of interconnected <laughs> consequences. So. Mm -hmm. I'll just say an, another contributor, and we don't really think about this, you know, medicine now is we're all subspecialized. I mean, that's kind of the tendency. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a urologist in addition to a, a transplant surgeon. We have um, all types of surgical <clears> subspecialists. <throat> and, and a lot of times we don't really act as, you know, Dr. Osorio is a primary care, you know, yes. provider. I don't know nearly as, as much as she does about, you know, the primary care. But, but you need a kidney transplant, yeah, you're yeah, the guy. But, but, yeah. but, the, but the thing is, we, we when, when a patient comes to us, we have to still remember that we're, we're physicians. And so I say that because I recently saw a patient with a hemoglobin A1C of like 14. Mm. Uh, that for those who are listening, that <laughs> is ridiculously high. So, I mean, normal is less than five and a half, and yes. that is means your blood sugar is like 800 well, or something. So he came to me with you know, urinary frequency, getting up at night, nocturia, and all these kind of symptoms. And, and so as you're all the time, I mean, I, I could be fool, fooled to think that maybe that's a prostate issue. I mean, it could be, but probably because of his blood sugar being high, you know, spilling yeah. sugar in his urine and you know, yeah. And, and not so everything's the prostate. Yes, not everything is the prostate. So, so we have to, you know, not just think along our specialty lines. We have to, you know, step back and and and, and think about, you know, general medicine and and and, and think about the, the type of foods they're eating, the, the environment they're they're in, and, and you know, that, that's how I got interested in overall health and healthcare disparities. Uh, after I finished my transplant training, I, I I was able to look at the medical landscape, and and that's when I really became aware of this healthcare disparity crisis. You know, in the next 20, 30 years, the majority of the population is going to be minorities. Yeah. African-Americans, Hispanic, Latino populations. We're not going to be minorities anymore. <laughs> exactly. We're going to be the majority, majority, but we have a seven to eight year shorter life expectancy. Yes. I mean, you look at that zip code um, profile. And in, 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 the, in the poorest communities, yes. it's 20 years less. Yes. Oh, yeah, it's like exactly. being in the third world. Exactly. And There's so, a link now. You can go online yes. and check your zip code. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And determine how what your life expectancy yeah. is. So what we're talking about is a national crisis. I mean, you know, you talk about the you know, gross domestic product and how it's going to really affect the overall economy yeah. and mm -hmm. bankrupt America. I mean, we have to solve this crisis now. And again, you're, you're, as you're adequately pointing out, a lot of this is, is related to the food that we're eating and, and not having access, you know, adequate access to, to healthy nutrition in these minority populations, but it's only going to get worse if we don't do something about it. I mean, you're a yeah. kidney transplant doc. Mm. The main reason for kidney transplants is high blood Di pressure and diabetes, and, and diabetes, diabetes right. which are caused by diet. Right. right. And it's untreated. It's unrecognized until late stages. People showing up in the ER with kidney failure. They didn't even know they had 
Kidding, so, you're, so you're trying to put yourself out of business, basically. Well, we, we, we need to. <laughs> we need, we need to. to. Yes. We need to shut down the dialysis right. centers. That's, yes. That would be a dream. To and they're down. just and they're expanding the number. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's going the opposite direction. And, and I think more of these multidisciplinary approaches um, to healthcare is necessary. Dr. Motlin and the Center for Functional Medicine, we partnered on this minority men shared medical appointment yeah. and really thought through. <laughs> Uh, the male, you know, the experience from a male perspective and his specialty is, is just that. But we also have the nutrition and the behavioral mm -hmm. health and lifestyle management component locked down. So when we marry our two um, areas together, the program is just unbelievably welcomed by the individuals who have participated. I mean, and, and typically African-American men avoid health care. It's, it's a non-starter. And when you started the program, you're like, well, we better only do six weeks right. because yes. they're not going to want to come and they don't want to talk about their problems. Yes. And we're and you we were pretty skeptical. So what, well, what happened? Well, you know, I told Dr. Modlin, <laughs> I said, Dr. Modlin, we don't really do six weeks. It's not enough. And he said, no, Tawny, it's going to be hard getting these people in. And, you know, let's just start here. And I said, OK, I respectfully <laughs> stood down. Uh, but, you know, I know what I know. I've done this for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, these men are like, when is the next program? Why did it only last right. six weeks? How can we come back? together so we've created reunion right. opportunities for them to reconnect that power of social connection yes. married to mer medical management is something that you don't see that you don't experience especially in the mm -hmm. african-american community you don't have a a place that you can go to and talk about your prostate issues mm -hmm. or your blood pressure issues where you are isolated have, yeah absolutely mm -hmm. we, we are in silos you know and, 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 and men a lot of these issues cause also ED issues that yeah, sexual, sexual, dis sexual dysfunction. dysfunction. Yes. And they don't yes. want to talk about that. And yes. so we were very sensitive when we put the curriculum together. And Dr. Modlin said, do you have any men who can facilitate? And I said, uh-oh, we're in trouble. But I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to have one of the top, one of our top physician assistants who is very culturally sensitive, who is well-trained, well-skilled. She's going to work with them. And I promise you, they will be receptive. Mm. And he sat in every single one of those sessions and you, you tell them what you learned. Yeah. From her. How was it, how was it for <laughs> you, From the Dr. physician Mama. assistant. <laughs> well, well, you know, for, first of all, she established a, a great rapport on, on day one. I mean, she she pulls them out individually and, and you know, does a physical examination and, and goes over the labs, explains, you know, what each laboratory analysis means, why they're doing it. And, and I mean, they, they um, open up to her, you know, quite nicely. I, I have I do an individual session with the men with her outside of the room. And we open up, and they, they talk about certain issues. Kevin, the educator, I mean, it is uh, health quite, coach. Yeah, health coach. He's he's quite great. But they, they have no um, hesitation opening up to, to Sarah. I mean, you know, there's no um, no issues there whatsoever. And to each and, other. To each right? other. Yes. And to each right. other, and that helped them yes. feel connected in ways oh, yes. that they hadn't, and mm -hmm. talk about things that were hard. And right. and they they kind of got over the mm -hmm. that sort of traditional historical oh, yes. mm. aversion to healthcare, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And right. their health improved. Mm. Yeah, we've had um, some men stop smoking. And, yes. And, you know, weight loss. Weight. Yes. Right. Significant weight mm. loss, blood pressure lowered, mm. um, you know, their A1C lowered, lipids lowered. Mm. So, and, and it's hard getting them out at the end of the class. Yeah. They're mm. oftentimes staying behind to talk with each other and share yeah. their stories. They're motivating each other. Right. And so it's just a beautiful uh, uh, scenario to witness mm. how engaged they are in their health. We need to do more of that. Now, who would have thought functional medicine would have been connected to urology in right. such a way mm. 
and deliver this program 10 years ago, you would have never thought to do that. Mm -hmm. But today it's the best way to manage chronic conditions. And as you said, when we have 50% of our population suffering from chronic disease and chronic disease doesn't work in isolation, mm -hmm. one in four have two or more. Mm -hmm. So if this is how we're trending, then we need to think very differently. We need to be outside of the box, or either we need to make that box a lot bigger in order to combat these issues. And, and I think that's mm -hmm. what our goal was. And, and we know these, these populations are far sicker, as I yes. mentioned at the beginning. Mm -hmm. They're costing our healthcare system far more money. Yeah. Yes. And yet, it's not something that's even on the radar of how to address within the healthcare system. Yeah. So, you know, you've talked, Dr. Modlin and Dr. Sari, about how do we create health equity performance measures that incentivize healthcare organizations to reduce these health disparities. In other words, mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we make it worth their while financially to do the right thing? Mm -hmm. So what are the kinds of things that we could measure and what, what could be happening as we move towards this value-based payment system where we're gonna be paying for outcomes, which is gonna change the way we're gonna think about these issues? Because before, the more amputations you do, the better you are. I remember right, there was right. a program in New York, there's like 800,000 diabetics in New York, and they had a nutritionist in the hospital and they were seeing dramatic reductions in amputations and mm -hmm. they shut the program down because the hospital revenue was going down because they weren't doing amputations. Right. They didn't want to pay $50 for a nutritionist, but they'd pay $5,000 for an amputation. Mm -hmm. So how do we begin to sort of change that? Well, I, I think we have to have, uh, as Tony was saying, a multidisciplinary approach. We have to get the big three, the diabetes, obesity, hypertension down. And we, we can measure that. How low has your hemoglobin A1C dropped because we've been able to provide fresh uh, food and recipes. Um, we've been able to provide exercise because even doing 15 minutes in your home of cardiac exercise three times a week is better than, than nothing. And mm -hmm. so, but we have to teach people what type of exercises or show them the apps if they have a smartphone what they, they can do dancing <laughs> yeah dancing you can do it's free you put your music up and you can work up a sweat and i think if we do get money a lot of my patients are medicaid medicare if we get incentives for the hospitals they will continue to um, support us so you think you think shifting medicare and medicaid reimbursements to pay for these kinds of community-based mm -hmm. programs yes. to pay for nutrition yes. classes to pay for cooking classes to mm -hmm. actually help people learn the skills and change their behavior together is what's gonna shift things. Right, right, and the cost of that is not nearly the cost of any hospitalization right. or any transplant. Yeah. Are you hopeful? All. I'm I'm very hopeful, um, I'm very hopeful. I, um, it, That's what wakes me up in the morning is, is that drive to to help other people and make it in a difference in their lives. And it's just, we have a long way to go, but I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, but I feel like the opiate crisis, it's an obesity crisis, it's a diabetes crisis, um, and we have to wake up and we have to work together because we're just all, a lot of our family members are dying um, way too soon. Yeah. How about you, Dr. Modlin? How do you see this shifting? You know, our, our primary you're, you're in the leadership mm -hmm. of Cleveland Clinic. Sure. You're thinking about these issues. You know, in, in the, 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 the primary care providers, they have a program called STAMP, Stop um, Now and Manage Patients, and, and they have a certain uh, amount of time every week where they can actually look at their uh, their their patient profile and they can determine which patients have not been getting their labs drawn, which patients have been missing appointments, and they can proactively call those patients to just you know say, well, why haven't you been coming in? Why haven't you you know been getting your bloods drawn? And just try to proactively manage those patients to stay on top of them, to prevent them from you know getting ill, to uh, prevent them from getting readmitted to the hospital. You know, it's really to the hospital's best advantage to 
keep patients out of the hospital. You know, it, it, it's cheaper for the hospital to try to manage patients, you know, in their homes and, and not. It's, have go, the, it's going through yes. that direction. Oh, exactly. It hasn't been like that before. No, but that's the that's the way it's going mm-hmm. going to be. Uh, hospitals are going to be um, um, penalized, you know, by by having patients readmitted. Uh, when when patients are discharged and readmitted within 30 days, especially, there's going to be you know penalties. So how how so, has your initiatives around health disparities, yes. and raising awareness, been um, received by the leadership at Cleveland Clinic? Yes, you know I, I think over the years it, it's um, I think it was a little slow initially. You know we we started the health fair back in 2003 and there was a a ramp up um, uh, several years to to get the health fair started and then the Minor Women's Health Center, but. Um, you know, I, I think in, in recent years, I, I think it's been more accepted. Now we have a population health program. Um, uh, we have uh, our community relations, um, community outreach program is more, uh, you know, proactive these days. So, I, you know, it, it's definitely being, being um, more well-received now. Because, um, because you know, what very you much said so. is yes. true, that mm-hmm. the majority, uh, you know, um, of our diseases are these lifestyle-driven yes. diseases mm-hmm. caused by diet. And if the predominant population affected by this are the minority populations. Yes. And they're the ones we're seeing here at Cleveland Clinic. Yes. We're taking care of them. Mm-hmm. We're gonna lose out if we don't actually figure out how to get them healthy. So oh, exactly. it seems like there should be a more focused approach mm-hmm. on addressing this from a organizational perspective. Sure. How do we think about mm-hmm. where the cost centers are for us, exactly. where the disease centers are, and how do we actually fix that? Is that, yeah. well, that we'll seems like it, it seems like it would yes. put a lot of fire underneath addressing these health disparities. Sure in the community because it, it's, it's in our best interest. Sure. Well, I've, I've, I've actually had several meetings, uh, and I'm happy to say this, uh, with, with um, our chief strategy officer, Josette Barron, and I've, I've uh, met with several of our institute chairs um, to start specialized centers throughout the organization. I, ca- I call it Multicultural Health Center of Excellence. We've started a, a minority stroke center, for example, in our neurological um, institute. Um, heart and vascular, uh, multicultural cardiovascular care center, mm-hmm. uh, and a, a program in our DDSI center, uh, the Digestive uh, Institute, Digestive Institute, um, different centers and different institutes throughout the organization to address a lot of the disparities in these specific um, specialty areas. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we're going to, you know, that way, that way we can actually work together, patient navigation, patient education, you know, research. Um, we also have to train the, you know, new and upcoming generation of healthcare providers around a lot of the stuff we're talking today about the healthcare disparities, um, the diverse causes of these healthcare disparities. But the leadership really is is um, aware of this. Uh, Dr. Mihalovic, the CEO, um, Dr. Wiedemann, Dr. Sabani. I mean, those are know, all the leadership. The, the leadership clinic. here at Cleveland Clinic understands this now. Uh, they've embraced it, you know, and because we understand that this is the the way we have to do it. You know, value based medicine. Um, so I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that you're here. We have a strong mm-hmm. functional medicine program. Five years now. Yeah, uh, yes. we just celebrated party last year. night. Yeah, party last night. And you guys, uh, I didn't know that you guys could dance so well. You oh, know, so, really? you know, so, uh, I got some. I got some food. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're where Langston News leading the way. You know. But um, no, I mean, you know, things are things are, are actually heading in the right direction here at, at Cleveland Clinic. A great Hispanic clinic now. You started mm-hmm. one one day a week. Now you're five days a week. Yes, Maybe. you know. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. things are really. Uh, we have an um, LGBT. Uh, Q mm-hmm. uh, clinic over in uh, Lakewood, Lakewood, mm-hmm. uh, because they have a lot of health disparities that that are unique to that patient population. Yeah. Also, um, disparities in the pediatric population. We have to be aware of some of those mm-hmm. disparities also. But a lot of it does rest in the the food and, and the um, food deserts that you've so mm-hmm. rightly pointed mm-hmm. out. And it is a social injustice. 
You've yeah. actually raised awareness in my, in my mind. Oh, well, you know, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out and, and raise <laughs> awareness you. in the community. So thank yes. you. Yeah, that's so yes. great. All right, so final question, to all of you: If you were a king or queen for a day, and you had the power to change something in healthcare or or policies to actually improve this system, and I, I, what would they be? And I'm also gonna jump in, even though I don't usually, but I'm gonna jump in too. Okay. <laughs> so all you guys go I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, I would implement since I'm queen for the day, no fast food. Um, at all in any um in the, in any, the entire united in, states in the entire united states bomb mcdonald's yes yeah that, there, that is no longer allowed you know like uh, yeah. alcohol prohibition you're yeah. not going to allow that it didn't oh. work out though <laughs> <laughs> um and then i would um have the resources to take down the sugar industry because mm. they control our politicians and we need policy change by our government needs to be able to protect us and so. not Get rid of fast food and shift okay. policies that, mm -hmm. that kind of address the sugar crisis. Right, and that can make food, um, fruits, and vegetables affordable. Affordable, yeah, fantastic. Okay, great, Dr. Modlin. Um, I, I would actually echo what Dr. Rosori said, but I, I would actually elevate this to um, a crisis status so that the United States Congress, um, President of the United States, every healthcare organization would would recognize this, that this is a crisis state that we need to address this, you know, right now immediately mm -hmm. and, and allocate the funding so that we can address this. I think that's right. I think yes. that's what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. There needs to be sort of a sort of a national and obviously global awareness yes. and bringing together stakeholders to solve this problem, which yes. is affecting all of us, whether you're Democrat, mm -hmm. Republican, black, white, yes. Hispanic, yes. it's killing us all, our economy, our families, our communities, yeah, mm -hmm. yes. our children's future. Mm -hmm. So I'll speak from an administrative standpoint first, and then I'll jump into a personal uh, wish, since I am queen for the day. <laughs> um, coverage, reimbursement for the services, nutrition, and health coaching. Just so the world knows, health coaching is not recognized in the industry as a billable service. So I guess that we says to us- doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Right, stress and lifestyle behavior change is not uh, recognized as important enough for coverage through insurance companies. So we mm -hmm. have to offer those services without payment. In addition to that, I would um, request that nutrition be covered. Um, today, if you bill with an obesity code uh, to an insurance company, no payment. So you mean to tell me if I go to see a nutritionist and I'm obese and I want to change my health, I'm at risk of receiving a bill that I can't afford to pay. Mm -hmm. So it would be unlimited nutrition, unlimited health coaching. Um, and then from a personal standpoint, there would be funding so that when Dr. Motlin does his fairs or when he opens his multicultural clinics or Dr. Osario wants to expand her diabetes clinics, we can do that on a larger scale. It's not once a year, twice a year. It's every month. Mm. It's as often as necessary mm -hmm. to bring these individuals together. We get them here. That's our opportunity mm. to impact change in their lives. Yeah, well, those so. are great. I, I think all of those are fabulous. I would add that I think that healthcare organizations, doctors, and need to stand up and understand and speak out about the power of food to cause disease mm. and the power of food to cure disease and to call for a national emergency to actually address this because mm. before doctors and hospitals got paid, the sicker patients were. Now, with changes in the Obamacare legislation that pay for people to be healthy instead of sick, in other words, if people kept coming back in the hospital, you kept getting paid, so it was fine. Now, you don't get paid if they come back. You're, you're, you're out, of, out of pocket. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's going to drive the change. And I think if we can get doctors and hospitals to really speak up about the food and to make basically hospitals healthier, because I, I was admitted here and this is one of the best hospitals in the world. And I was terrified at the breakfast menu. I, <laughs> I really had to call Pancakes. in to get food from somewhere else. So, anyway, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you all for joining us on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Thank you. Um, Thank you and if you love this conversation on The Doctor's Pharmacy, please leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Share with your friends and family on social media, wherever you subscribe. You can subscribe to these podcasts and we'll see you next week on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Mark Hyman. So two quick things. Number one, thanks so much for listening to this week's podcast. It really means a lot to me. If you love the podcast, I'd really appreciate you sharing with your friends and family. Second, I want to tell you about a brand new newsletter I started called Mark's Picks. Every week, I'm going to send out a list of a few things that I've been using to take my own health to the next level. This could be books, podcasts, research that I found, supplement recommendations, recipes, or even gadgets. I use a few of those. And if you'd like to get access to this free weekly list, all you have to do is visit drhyman.com forward slash picks. That's drhyman.com forward slash picks. I'll only email you once a week, I promise, and I'll never send you anything else besides my own recommendations. So just go to drhyman.com forward slash picks, that's P-I-C-K-S, to sign up free today. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.